time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio For a new generation TomSumnerProgram.com the Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. One thing about this world you can't depend on anything. The leaders that we follow, they can't even write their name But here we are in America Ain't it just a shame how it goes on and on Our children going hungry, teens are turning to crime And politicians know it's true, but they ain't got no time But here we are in America Nothing seems to change, it just goes on and on When you see 
everybody. This is the Tom Sumner program. My uh, guest this hour is a city reporter at the Providence Journal who has written for the New York Post, Huffington Post, and NBC News um, about uh, politics, national news, and uh, media. And uh, she has a new book. It uh, just came out in April of this year called Women of the White House, the Illustrated Story of the First Ladies of the United States of America by Amy Russo. And Amy joins me by phone. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Amy, um, I, I can't help wondering, um, you know, you've written about uh, 
politics and national news and foreign affairs, but why the look back? Well, I think Americans, you know, we're not known for having a great grasp on our history in general, but I think <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to the first ladyship, uh, there perhaps isn't a huge understanding of the capacity that role has to be powerful, to be politically influential. And there were certainly women who served in the role who fulfilled more traditional hostessing duties and perhaps didn't leave as much of an impact. But there were others, you know, classic examples we think of, like Eleanor Roosevelt, Hillary Clinton, and so many more that we don't think about or notice that really left a mark. And and speaking of that, uh, I've always been fascinated by the fact that Teddy Roosevelt put on, uh, put the West Wing on the White House. Um, but first ladies have had different roles, as you just mentioned. Um, is there a, a steady arc that goes from St. Martha Washington to Melania Trump? Yeah, if you talk about kind of the development of the First Ladyship from something that was really still just ceremonial, and it really is, it remains ceremonial, but now it's, you know, there are things about it that make it a little more official, even though it's not written into any of our, you know, nation's governing documents. But, uh, you know, uh, Rosalind Carter was the first to establish her own East Wing workspace. If you reach a lot further back in history, Lou Hoover was the first to establish a really well-defined initiative. And now we, of course, have that expectation for all First Ladies that they come into the office, uh, you know, uh, having some sort of cause. Maybe it's volunteering. Maybe it's charitable work. Maybe it's something that could be political in nature. Maybe it's you know, a campaign for health. Uh, so you can point to all these small incremental changes from Martha Washington to Jill Biden that, you know, either the position's powers have been expanded for different reasons or it's been made more official. When did First ladies start having a staff of their own? Yeah, that is a great question. The paid staff uh, was something that didn't happen until Edith Roosevelt's uh, tenure. So she was the first to hire a secretary and caterers, and that really paved the way for other women to begin doing that too, because it is such an undertaking to be First Lady. Of course, aside from, you know, hosting events and arranging social gatherings, a lot of these women, you know, at different times, they they orchestrated massive renovations. Uh, you know, they undertook political causes to some lobbied. And so it was really a big job. So the paid staff, I think, was a big victory. You know, there's so many times we look back at, at say, George Washington and think in terms of, of how he set precedents for presidents going forward, um, leaving after two terms, uh you know, and and other things like that. Um, was there something about Martha Washington that left sort of, um, uh, this is how you do it? I was the first first lady, so it's all built on what she established? In part. Uh, when she entered, of course, she was the first, and it was on her shoulders to kind of set precedence for what other women 
would do in the role and what the role would look like. And she actually entered the role quite reluctantly, and she was afraid it would put her life under a microscope, which, you know, of course, to some extent it does. There's, <laughs> there's a, you know, rationale behind that, that uh, you know, anxiety she was probably feeling. But she held formal dinners and public receptions each week. So uh, a couple days of the week, I believe it was Thursdays and Fridays, she would set aside to organize these events. And I believe that would have been expected regardless. It would have been expected that, uh, you know, there was no White House at the time. It was in Philadelphia, but that the presidential residence would be hosting, uh, you know, people in, in, in the House and be hosting dinners. And she definitely stepped up to the plate on that and, and had really well-organized receptions. Who was the, the first First Lady to live in the White House? I believe that was Abigail Adams, and I think they were moving into the White House uh, while she was First Lady. And from what I understand, it was quite a chaotic time because things weren't quite finished yet. Was, was there ever uh, uh, an official... I, I don't know, I guess today we'd call it a uh, a ribbon-cutting or an open house um, that that sort of launched that now we're at the White House? Um, I'm not quite sure on that, uh, to be honest. Uh, I would assume there was some sort of, you know, excitement and celebration around the fact that you finally had this massive residence being constructed. Uh, but in terms of a ribbon cutting, it's hard to say because, uh, you know, Abigail Adams was moving in before it was finished, and uh, they were kind of trying to work from there despite the fact that things were not all in place yet. Did the uh, the establishment of the White House um, coincide with the move of the of the seat of government to Washington? Yes, I, I believe it did. And in in the process of looking back at all of uh, all of these various, what is it now, forty six, I think, uh, first ladies 40, that we've forty seven that were officially recognized. Okay, um, who was unofficially recognized? Uh, I I think you know when there were some women who who died before their husbands entered office purely because. We just didn't have the, you know, medical system we have today. Sure. We didn't have the kind of health care. So you, you saw people dying from diseases that probably wouldn't have afflicted uh, people today. So that list includes Martha Jefferson, Rachel Jackson, Hannah Van Buren. And the tradition was when the first lady died before the husband entered office, there'd have to be a surrogate first lady. So... I, that would usually fall to if, if the first lady had, or the woman who would have been first lady had a daughter already, she might step in and kind of fill in her mother's shoes, or maybe a niece would step in. And uh, these women really weren't permanent fixtures in the White House, but if there was a large event that needed tending to, that, that really somebody needed to be helping out on, those women would step in temporarily. More about Women of the White House with journalist and author Amy Russo straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. 
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More about women of the White House with journalist and author Amy Russo straight ahead. What about Edith Galt? Where does she fit into all of this? Yeah, Edith Wilson is is a very interesting character because when Woodrow Wilson had his stroke and was really incapacitated and, you know, frankly, incapable of leading the nation, Edith, according to her memoir, stepped in at the time, liaised with politicians, read documents on his behalf, and both delivered and kept certain information from him during that time. And there are historians who debate whether or not she overstated her role in her memoir. I'm sure that's possible. But either way, he relied on her very heavily at that time to the point where there were even, you know, politicians of the day who were saying it's it's pretty inappropriate to have a first lady who seems to be taking such a commanding presence in the presidency. But, of course, uh, you know, he he probably was physically unable to, to truly serve in in the capacity that he should have been able to. So he leaned on her quite a lot. Were they married when uh, when he entered the White House? No, I don't think so, because Ellen Wilson was his first wife, and uh, she had passed away, and then uh, Edith Wilson came along. I, but... There were uh, there was one presidential marriage that happened shortly after the president entered the White House, and that was uh, Grover Cleveland, and that was quite interesting because uh, his his wife was much younger than him, and it was kind of a bit of a media scandal. I think they had a lot of fun <laughs> with it at the time, uh, but that was definitely a, a chaotic time for them and and their image and their relationship with media. Um. What were some of the things that you reveal in your book that surprised you? That's a great question. Uh, I think there are some great examples of these lesser-known first ladies that, for one reason or another, had quite a bit of impact on their husband and his presidency. Uh, One example would be Louisa Adams, who I, frankly, wasn't that familiar with. And there was great controversy over her being the first foreign-born first lady. And she was John Quincy's wife, and that became a big political scandal for him because his uh, political foes used that information as a way to insinuate that Louisa Adams wasn't really an American. And, you know, by extension, maybe John Quincy wasn't either because he had chosen her as a wife. And the criticism had become so intense that during his re-election campaign against Andrew Jackson, he had actually, you know, really asked the public to just hold off on the criticism because it had become something that was taking such an emotional toll on both of them, and I think especially Louisa it was. And uh, so that was, a, you know, something that, that I frankly wasn't that aware. I know that, you know, of course, um, Melania Trump is, is the one we think of as being America's foreign-born first lady, but so much longer before her, we had Louisa Adams. And when did first ladies start playing an active role in the president's uh, uh, 
political f- affairs, and, and I'm thinking more of, of the roles they play in campaigning, public speeches, and traveling around the country representing the president. Yeah, I could name some earlier examples, but in terms of, of checking all of those boxes, uh, Lady Bird Johnson is one who really fits that bill. She entered in the even, wake even of Even over case. Eleanor Roosevelt? Well, Eleanor Roosevelt, yes, she absolutely was very, very active. Um, and she is another great example. Uh, she was active in the World War One effort. She was devoted to civil rights. She joined the NAACP. Uh, she helped out with the New Deal and, and helped to tackle social ills. So there was a really huge list of things uh, that she accomplished. And later on, uh, when Lady Bird Johnson entered office, in the wake of the JFK assassination, she ended up being the first first lady to do a whistle stop campaign on behalf of her husband. And she stood by his push for civil rights. She lobbied for the Highway Beautification Act, which, uh, for those who don't know, was this crackdown on billboard ads, and it helped to eliminate certain signage on the road that I guess was seen as kind of a blight to <laughs> the drive. And uh, there was the planting of a lot of flowers, and it passed after her lobbying efforts. So she was one that we saw have a very um, well-defined political initiative. But yes, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, absolutely. Uh, do f- um, and I, th- I think this is probably fairly obvious, but maybe not. Um, how do first ladies? Um, define their role and and map out their role because I, I don't think there's really a job description that they get. You know, they get elected and then there's like a training period. You know, they they just have to kind of reinvent the office every time. Um, how do they do that? And and did some do it better than others? Yes, yeah, some definitely did it better than others, but you're right, there's no there's no job description. It's not written into any of our governing documents. There's no place that it's officially made clear this is what's expected of the First Lady. It's not even a paid position. So in, in some ways you could say it's not exactly an official job. Uh, but it really depends on the desires of each each woman, and to some extent the support of their husband as to whether they end up being very politically active or very active uh, with perhaps, you know, social causes, or if they end up being more reticent and don't really choose to do that much. I think it really comes down to what each one has has personally, uh, you know, taken the initiative to do. And each of these women have set you know, so many different precedents. Uh, but it, it really is that, that type of thing that lends itself to whatever its occupant chooses. You know, I can't help thinking about uh, some of the appearances that Jackie Kennedy made. Um, in, in fact, so many that, that were um, so well covered by the media and she drew such such crowds and adulation in her speaking engagements around the world that it prompted President Kennedy once to say he was the man who accompanied Jackie Kennedy to Paris. Um, how significant 
was Jackie Kennedy as a first lady when you when you look at them over time? She definitely had an outsized reputation when it came to adding that aspect of glamour to the first ladyship. I don't think there was anybody who was quite as glamorous, quite as stylish, quite as put together as Jackie Kennedy. So, of course, uh, she had very close relationships with designers and, you know, is known for always being very well-dressed. But apart from that, uh, during her first ladyship, she helped to organize a really substantial renovation of the White House. And both she and JFK did a uh, walkthrough tour of the White House that was broadcasted uh, on television. So there was a lot of great media surrounding her first ladyship. There was a lot of good coverage of what she was doing. And I think, you know, in terms of setting a standard in a way of image making in the White House, there's really been nobody else that's come quite close to doing quite what she did in that way. Were all of the first ladies expected to um, play that that role to some degree in in terms of you know you mentioned hostessing and having different events uh, um, during their tenures at at the White House uh, going all the way back to Martha Washington um, but was was there a sense that that they were in charge of of the culture for an administration or um were they all expected to to play multiple roles, advisor to the president and the the cultural attache, if you will? I think in terms of setting the, the cultural tone for the White House, the First Lady definitely has that as a as a significant responsibility. Um, I think that's a common thread with a lot of them. For example, Lucy Hayes, uh, she's perhaps a more dramatic case of this, but she brought temperance to the White House, and that was a huge cultural shift at the time. And that's really what her husband's presidency, in part, became known for when it came to you know, the attitudes of the White House, what it was like to dine at the White House and, and spend time there. That was definitely the prevailing mood was, you know, temperance and this kind of social responsibility. So first ladies can definitely do a lot in the way of changing culture. But in terms of acting as an advisor, I think there are quite a few cases in which the first lady hasn't, perhaps because in some cases, they haven't wished to wade that much into politics. Uh, you know, Barbara Bush famously avoided politics. Her initiative centered on literacy, which, you know, is something that in a way is very strategic because both parties can get behind that. That's a non-political issue. But there were some women that, you know, both uh, they wanted to contribute politically and their husbands had actually listened to them. So it's kind of, you know, a two-pronged thing. You have to have both sides of that equation. But uh, definitely, I, I do think that they have the capacity to serve as an advisor in some sense. Were first ladies always scrutinized by the press and the public the way they are today? 
I think that was really something that came about when you had media established more firmly in our country uh, around the time of, of Joseph Pulitzer during uh, Grover Cleveland's presidency when he had married, you know, a much younger woman and was getting married after entering office. So, you know, you've got two strikes against you <laughs> there. I, the press had followed him around to his honeymoon spot. There are these crazy stories of reporters hiding in trees, trying to spy <laughs> on them. And you never saw that with, with someone like a Martha Washington. I think earlier on in history, you had people who were referred to more as historical observers rather than journalists. But one could really call them a journalist. And, you know, they'd write about the goings-on of the day. But I think it wasn't until you really had the establishment of, uh, you know, sensationalism and that kind of journalism that, that the first lady began to get a lot more attention and perhaps attention that could be quite stressful and, and not always positive. When did, when and how did the light bulb go off for you that it was, uh, you know, time to do a collection like this, a book like this? Well, my publisher uh, was the one that had had the idea and discussed it with me and, and you know, said, will you be willing to do this? And it seemed like the right time uh, when I started the book. It was, I think, just before we had started hearing the list of candidates that would be running in the uh, past election. And, you know, knowing that we were going into an election season, knowing that would involve a lot of female candidates, and uh, and especially after the election, once we had, uh, once we had now our, our first, our first second man, <laughs> it's a lot, <laughs> our first second man, it all kind of, I think, fits together. And of course, I didn't know the election would pan out that way by the time that I, I had written the book. But we were definitely heading toward, you know, a very uh, political, uh, politically turbulent and politically significant time. And I thought, you know, it is a great time to do a book like this and focus on women. Did you, um, was the book finished before the election? Was Joe Biden included in the book? It was finished before the election, but we updated it before it went to the printer uh, having seen that, that Joe Biden was elected and, and Jill Biden would be his first lady. We wanted it to be the most up-to-date uh, book on first ladies that we could have. And also, it was helpful because Jill Biden is doing something that no first lady has ever done before, which she's working while she's in office and continuing a teaching career. So that is another major precedent that is being set in real time. You know, Jackie Kennedy had... Uh, had been a journalist or written for a magazine um I, I can't remember exactly what all she did but she had worked professionally um were there many examples of first ladies who had worked prior to becoming first lady um there are some i i think some women were involved in teaching and uh that was pretty popular in earlier days, uh, Nancy Reagan and her husband both actually started as actors, so they had pursued uh, careers in the arts. So there are some different examples. Uh, Hillary Clinton was obviously very politically active and even elected to the Senate while 
serving in the, the first ladyship. So you do have some examples. The um, to what degree did did the the women of the White House, these various first ladies, influence the interest of women to get into politics? And and how much did did they open the door to what we've seen there? Are several women mayors around the country, as you pointed out, we have uh, you know our first uh, woman vice president. Um, to to what degree were the women of the White House role models and examples for women who wanted to enter public life in this way? That's a good question. I think Abigail Adams tried to be the first to advance women's rights, but at the time, because, you know, that I think her calls really fell on deaf ears, it wasn't that successful, but she has a uh, famous letter to her husband, and of course they exchanged a lot of letters, but while he was helping to draft the Declaration of, of Independence, she had told him, you know, I hope that you, quote, remember the ladies, and in saying that, she had meant that She'd hoped her husband would include women somehow or give women some kind of a voice when he was helping to uh, establish the new nation. And, of course, that didn't happen ultimately. But you had women who really did uh, push uh, for the power of other women and I think could have been role models. Eleanor Roosevelt, she really, I think, understood that media at her time was really a man's profession uh, and was heavily male-dominated, and she had actually held press conferences during which she invited only women and shut out men. So there was another example of when she had been, uh, you know, quite quite an ally to women. And this was who? Uh, that was Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, uh, Caroline Harrison. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Caroline Harrison would be one more example. Uh, she successfully pushed for the co-education of men and women at Johns Hopkins Medical University. So there was somebody who actually made uh, an improvement for women in the way of education. And now that this uh, this book is complete, um, Amy, what's what's next for you? I'm not quite sure. Uh, right now, I've been devoting my time to reporting and just, uh, you know, getting the lay of the land here in Providence. Uh, holding I down your day job? Yeah, holding down my day job. So that's one thing. I um, just moved here from New York City about a month ago. So still kind of, uh, you know, getting getting used to everything here. And aside from that, I hope to one day write another book. I, I hope maybe it'll come out of something that I'm reporting on. Maybe there'll be a, a subject that lends itself to a book. So I'm always, you know, keeping an eye out for new ideas. Now, this is uh, Women of the White House, the illustrated story of the First Ladies of the United States of America. Um, how much research went into this and how much is, is illustrated and what was available for illustrations? So in terms of the research, it took a little less than a year, but it was definitely over the course of several months. And, uh, 
you know, a lot of it was spent collecting the memoirs of each first lady, collecting copies of letters they'd written, uh, letters they'd written to their husbands, letters from family that talked about the first lady, uh, recollections from people who'd lived during that time uh, and their writing. So a lot of different primary, secondary sources and uh, I'm sorry. What were your other two questions? I wanted to no. I, I wanted to ask about uh, photography and illustrations and so yes. on, and how much of that was available, especially going way back. Yeah. So I, I think you know that was something that the publisher had kind of put together, uh, selecting all the illustrations and, and getting them all in here. I think they did a great job. Um, so you'll see, you know, at le- I think at least a couple illustrations with each. Uh, with each essay, I'll say, on the First Ladies. And I think a lot of them come from the Library of Congress. So there's a lot of uh, really interesting photography. There are painted portraits. There are photos of artifacts from that time. Uh, So there's a, a lot of variety. Is it sectioned First Lady by First Lady, or did you go by subjects and and group First Ladies? It is sectioned first lady by first lady, so you can flip through and, you know, see them all in chronological order, which I think is nice for readers in case you're interested in one more than another. You can kind of hop around. Well, this is uh, an interesting project, Amy. I, I, I can't help thinking you really had, uh, had a good time putting this together. I did. It was very enjoyable for me. And it was great because I learned a lot, and uh, it, I felt like I was taking a free college course, you know, just the time <laughs> spent uh, gathering all the research and everything. It was very uh, enlightening for me and uh, gave me a great respect for many of these women. Well, Amy, thanks so much for spending time with me this morning. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can uh, find out more about you and about your work, not just this book, but past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I don't have a website, but a good place to reach me is my Twitter page, which is Amy M. Russo. And then if you want to read any of my recent work, you can always visit the Providence Journal's website. Well, Amy, thanks again uh, for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me. Good luck with the book and everything else you're doing. Thanks. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. That was uh, Amy Russo. She is a city reporter at the Providence Journal. She previously wrote for the New York Post, Huffington Post, and NBC News, where she scripted a daily morning news show. Um, She's had work appear in USA Today and Foreign Affairs, among others, and her coverage has spanned politics, national news, and the media industry. And um, her uh, new book came out in April of uh, 2021 called Women of the White House, the Illustrated Story of the First Ladies of the United States. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Old-fashioned radio For a new generation TomSumnerProgram.com The TomSumnerProgram.com The TomSumnerProgram.com
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. 
And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Good evening. This is Charles Collingsworth at the White House in Washington, D.C. For many of you, this will be your first visit to this historical landmark. Our tour through these hallowed halls will be conducted by the First Lady. Good evening, Charles. Good evening. Shall we begin here in the West Wing? Yes. If your cameras will just move through these oak panel doors over here on our left, we will be in the cabinet. Which was named after our 35th president. I can't help but wish your cameramen had opened the doors before they moved their heavy cameras The doors, incidentally, were a gift from Mrs. R.C. Greenleaf of Raleigh, North Carolina. They were made out of solid oak, and up until a few seconds ago, they stood over 15 feet high. They were lovely. Now we are approaching the Thomas Jefferson Room, which I think you'll find rather interesting. President Jefferson used to come into this room and sit for hours just gazing out the window at the White House lawn. The White House lawn was a gift from Mrs. W.C. Ridgway (laughs) of Hollyhock, Virginia, The president and I decided to leave it just the way it was originally. It's lovely. This football, which has just come crashing through the $5,000 President McKinley French windows, belongs to the current president, who, of course, is also my husband. He's lovely. Now we're entering the President Grant drawing room, which I think you'll find rather interesting. We decided to leave this room just the way it was when President Grant left office. I do notice a lot of dust on the furniture in here. Yes, and that dust was a gift from Mrs. Lambert of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Now, if you'd care to follow me down this hall to the next room, as we go, I should like to point out the various paintings on the wall. Yes, I wish you would point them out. Well, there's this one and this one. (laughs) And that great big one over there and this little teeny one down here. And finally, this one over here. Thank you for pointing them out. (laughs) What's in this room over here? I believe we are standing in front of the President Monroe Conference Room. 
Oh, my darling. Oh, my darling. Oh, my darling. It's so easy to get confused. It's such a big house. (laughs) Now, I believe straight ahead of us is the blue room. Yes, this is the blue room. We decided to leave it just the way President Blue had it originally. (laughs) Now we are in the East Wing. This is the section we are having completely remodeled. All the rooms are being changed around. Yes, the carpenters certainly are busy, aren't they? Aren't they, though? And those carpenters were a gift from Mr. and Mrs. (laughs) Al Bianchi. Of Hayworth, New Jersey. I find it quite easy to get lost in this section. Yes, I imagine one could get lost in here. Pardon me, pardon me. I seem to have uh, made the uh, wrong turn somewhere. Now, I'm trying to uh, find the bedroom. I just came out of the uh, John Hancock bathroom where I was uh, taking a shower in the Alexander Hamilton bathtub. And I think the that... The carpenters and painters here have been just working like beavers around the clock. Which way is she? The bedroom. The bedroom is where? Actually, the original schedule didn't call for it to be completed until July. But the work has gone. I I should like to point out that I am. I am. I am standing here in my shorts, uh, dripping wet. Now I've. uh, I've got an important conference in uh, 15 minutes. So I must be dressed in uh, ten minutes, which means I shall have to uh, move ahead uh, toward our bedroom with great vigor. Excuse me, Charles. Dear, go down this hall to the Andrew Jackson smoking room, then turn right into the President Taft Rumpus room, across over through the Woodrow Wilson ping-pong room, then left at the Dolly Madison Pinnacle Room, <laughs> through the President Grant Drinking Room, past the Richard Nixon Dumbwaiter. <laughs> and that's our room. Well, let's see. Now I go past the, uh, the Dolly Madison Ping Pong Room, across the uh, Richard Nixon the Drinking Room, and then I go left at the Andrew Jackson Room. Uh, wasn't that your husband? Yes, it was. He's a magnificent-looking man. Yes, and we decided to leave him just the way he was <laughs> Incidentally, he was a gift. That's nice. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Shed his grace on thee 
shining sea Ain't it a shame The way things have changed In God we trust What's meant so much To love, not to kill To help each other up or heal oh, 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 America, the beautiful My country, tears of
Alexander Zonjic, Don't Touch That Dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.